Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. There is good news in that the book of Esther reminds us that the evil of Haman and men like him, that kind of evil is real and it exists in the world. But the book of Esther also shows us that that kind of evil is always kept on a leash. As we're going to see, God does not allow it to go where it could go. We saw that God can even use evil for his purposes. God is not evil. He does not do evil, but he can work evil in his plans to end for good. Hope in God, oh my soul, he is strong and he is strong to save. Hope in God, he's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. All around us, we see bad men and women, prospering seemingly without a check on their actions and behaviors. It's really frustrating, and we wish for justice to be done to them and for them to be stopped. Pastor Ricky will be continuing to teach from the story of Esther, where we find a similar situation. Pastor Ricky will be reminding us of God's sovereign will and how he has the final say in all matters. This should be encouraging to us, despite the aggravation that we often have to endure. Let's join Pastor Ricky now for part one of his message, Where the Story Turns. Today, we're going to get into God's Word in the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Esther. And we are finally at the turning point of the whole book of Esther. I want to ask you a question as we open this morning. Where do you go when you can't turn your story around? Where do you go where you feel stuck, you feel trapped, you maybe even tried your best and your best isn't good enough at times? I remember a number of years ago, there was a particular pattern of sin that I had in my life and I felt as though I had tried my hardest, but it just wasn't turning around. I felt like I couldn't escape this thing. And I remember finally one day almost giving up and praying, Lord, I don't know how to turn this around anymore. Maybe you've battled an addiction in your life, or maybe it seems like the difficult circumstances in your life just keep hitting you like wave after wave. You don't know how this could ever turn around. Or maybe you've done something to your own life. You've made a series of choices and they've landed you with broken relationships or consequences, and you're beginning to think, man, all of this stuff is finally catching up with me. I don't know how to turn this around. That's exactly what we're gonna be talking about today. I'm going to spoil the big idea up front because I want us to really get this this morning. The big idea of the text this morning is we take action, but trust God to turn the story. We're going to see that Esther takes action and we should take action, but ultimately we have to trust God to turn the story. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now pause. Pause right there. I know it's hard. But if you haven't been with us, you probably won't understand the gravity of this moment we find ourselves in. Esther and her uncle Mordecai, the story began with them being shown as being exiles, living in exile as Jews, but living in Persia. They're away from their homelands. And we see that in the story of Esther, through kind of some major moral compromise and religious compromise, Esther 
basically wins the equivalent of Persian idol bachelor where she wins, if you could say that, this contest where the king gathers all the beautiful women that are unmarried in his kingdom and one by one spends an evening with them and does that until he spends an evening with Esther where he then decides that she's queen and she becomes the queen of Persia. And it looks like it's a sad state of affairs when Esther, one of God's chosen people, has fallen so far that she's literally first a concubine, then the queen of an evil Persian dictator in many ways. And it gets worse because an evil enemy of the Jews named Haman gets offended with Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and therefore bribes the king to commit genocide against all of the Jews in all of the Persian empire. And so with time running out, we saw last week that Esther finally agrees to reveal her identity as a Jew and try to save her people, take this kind of last ditch effort to save her people. Now, what we covered though, was that no one can come uninvited into the presence of the king. In fact, the book of Esther opens with somebody, actually his wife, his old queen, disobeying the orders of the king and being banished. And so we know that this is, in a sense, a worse crime to come uninvited into the presence of the king, which could lead to death. And this king Xerxes does not like his women to be unsubmissive. And so this act of betrayal or act of disregarding the king's commands could be met very well with death. So right there is where we pick up the story. She's sitting there in her royal robes right outside the presence of the king and comes into view. And you can imagine as she's approaching the throne room, there are whispers. Where is the queen going? What is she doing? Was she summoned? She wasn't summoned. What is going on? And people are having flashbacks to Queen Vashti defying the king and thinking, here we go all over again. But then verse two, and when the king saw Esther standing in the courts, She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now, as we've seen, this was a bold move. A bold move, but one that does not end in her death. We saw last week that that Esther, before doing this, calls a fast of all the people. Esther determines to do what she can do, but then determines to ask God to do what only he can do. And it seems as though here, God has granted her favor. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So Esther determines to do what she can do, but then she asks God to do what only he can do, and the Lord, through the Lord, she has favor. Now, what she does next is surprising, though. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Now, he's not literally saying that he'll give her half of his kingdom. This is an expression, an expression of favor, that I'll give whatever you want to you within my power. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. 
Then the king said, well, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So now he's even in a better mood. He's just had a bunch of food, had a bunch of wine, is enjoying this feast. And you think, okay, here it is. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, what Esther does here seems strange to us, but is in another way brilliant. Now, you could say, okay, when... This is the big moment when the king holds out the scepter. Why doesn't Esther just lead with, hey, all of my people are going to be wiped out. Could we not do that? Or, okay, you think, okay, maybe, you know, she invites him to a feast, gets him in a good mood. Um, he has a little bit of wine. We, have, we see that he has a habit of having a little bit of wine all the time. And he has his little bit of wine again. And you think, okay, this is the moment. If it please the king, okay, if he'll grant my request, okay, let him come to another feast tomorrow. And you think, what in the world is Esther doing? Well, you have to remember that Esther is facing an uphill battle right here. First, the king does not know that Esther is Jewish. And he may not be happy that his wife has essentially deceived him about her ethnic identity for the entirety of their marriage. Now, second... The king has already accepted a huge bribe to wipe out the Jewish people. This bribe was massive even for a king. Haman essentially offers half of the yearly income of the kingdom to the king. So I don't know how Haman is this rich or what his plan is, but he is offering half the GDP of Persia to the king if he'll do what he requests. That's, that's not easy to go back on. And third, the king might look foolish if he sent out this decree saying, let's kill all the Jews, and then has to backtrack on that. Kings do not backtrack on decrees like that. So this is a huge uphill battle, and Esther decides, okay, I'm going to try to work my way to the, to the position of most favor possible, She's building up the king. She's making him feel important. So Esther, she prays, she acts, but she goes in with a plan. She asks God to do what only God can do, but she does all that she can do. She acts boldly, but she has a plan in mind. This is certainly heroic. And Esther's name is on the book after all. And so we think this is the big moment that turns the whole book. This is the great reversal where things will start going right for God's people. One heroic person can turn the tide, except Esther is not the hero of this book. She may be heroic, but her actions don't definitively turn the tide. In fact, after she does this, things get worse. Let's look at verse nine. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. 
And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Understand what's happening here. Haman is essentially gathering his friends and family to boast to them about how wonderful he is. Verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Listen, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. For all of his riches, all of his power, he does not have the one thing he wants, which is respect. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, well, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. You think gallows, you may be thinking like the Western gallows where there's like a noose and stuff. Not to get morbid here, but the gallows in Persia, what's translated as gallows really was essentially a huge pike, a huge pike set into the ground that the person would be impaled upon. And he's building this thing just for scale, basically as high as a radio tower or something like that. So the whole city would be relatively flat and he's building this thing way up in the air because he wants everyone to see this guy being destroyed publicly in front of everyone. So Esther does this great heroic act. She goes to the king, she wins favor, she's working a plan, but it's too slow. By the time she even puts her plan in motion, her uncle is going to be dead. See, there is good news though. There is good news in that the book of Esther reminds us that the evil of Haman and men like him, that kind of evil is real and it exists in the world. But the book of Esther also shows us that that kind of evil is always kept on a leash. As we're gonna see, God does not allow it to go where it could go. We saw that God can even use evil for his purposes. God is not evil, he does not do evil, but he can work evil in his plans to end for good, as we saw in the story of Joseph. And what's important to note here is that this seems like Esther throws her best into this situation, but Haman, because of his position, because of his political maneuvering, is still supreme that he will always outmaneuver Esther in one way or another. But there is one person that Haman cannot outmaneuver. The second section this morning is what only God can do. The first section was what Esther can do. The second section is what only God can do. This is where we get to the exact turning point of the whole book of Esther. This is the thing that this entire piece of literature turns on. And remember that throughout this whole book, there's been no mention of God at all, again and again and again, chapter after chapter. And it's leaving us asking, where is the Lord in the middle of all this? Why won't he come and help his people? Is it because his people have turned away from him? Is the Lord abandoned them now? But look, look here. Chapter six, verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep. 
And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the young man who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? And now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. I don't know about you, but this is not screaming turning point of the whole book to me. This is not screaming, here, this is the decisive moment that everything will turn around. No, what seems really pedestrian and ordinary doesn't seem like it has a great effect on the rest of the book. It seems like a strange side trail from the main plot. What we find is that the king, one night, he just could not sleep. Have you ever been unable to sleep? Why were you unable to sleep? Maybe you were uncomfortable. Maybe you ate something. Maybe you were restless. Maybe you were thinking about things. Maybe you're feeling things. Maybe you had too much of something, too much to eat, too much to drink. You're about to go to the bathroom. You just can't sleep. Why couldn't this king sleep? We don't know. He can't sleep. And this king of Persia, out of everything he could do in the middle of the night, he could have people come in and juggle for him. He has a giant harem at his disposal. He has all kinds of people to entertain him in all kinds of ways. What he decides to do is bring the book of memorable deeds. This would have been a dusty, dry accounting of the things that happen in his kingdom. This would be a cross between the worst U.S. history book you have with the phone book, where 80% of the U.S. book of history is just an accounting of this guy did this, and this is how he was rewarded. This would be name after name, and so the king's lying there, the person's reading, this happened, and then this. This happened, and then this. And this person received this, and this person did evil, and he received this. And so the king is lying there, and all of a sudden... He happens upon the story, out of all of the chronicles, he happens on the story where Mordecai saves the king from an evil plot. And he wakes up and realizes, wait a minute, did we do anything to thank this person for this? In the ancient world, it would have been crucial for the king to lavishly reward anyone that revealed plots against them. Why? Because he wants to encourage other people to come forward and reveal other plots. Because if those people are not rewarded, then the next time the king's going to be assassinated, they may just say, you know what, huh, maybe the next guy will be a little more generous. So this is a matter of life and death for the king as he's concerned about this. And he decides, you know what, we're going to do something about this. This is probably 4.30 in the morning. And he says, you know what, we're going to figure this out. I'm going to go out into the court and I'm going to find somebody to help me with this. Meanwhile, this is like a comedy. I mean, really, Esther has so many features of a comedy because Haman is so ready to have the king's permission to impale Mordecai on a spike that he wakes up at four in the morning, gets dressed and decides to hang out in the court of the king on the off chance that at some point that morning, the king will be ready to see him. So you have two people entering the courtyard at the same time, Haman, who is ready to ask that Mordecai finally be killed 
and the king entering, who can help me honor Mordecai? Again, this seems a strange side trail, but I want to show you something. I got to go literature professor for a second here and explain to you that Hebrew literature often emphasizes a point with something called a chiasm. We see this sometimes even in the Gospels where you have kind of a sandwich between a parable and a parable, and then in the middle is an action or vice versa. There's there a way of emphasizing the importance of something. So some of the Psalms are structured like this, where they'll start with giving glory to the king and end with giving glory to the king, and then kind of uh, then a recounting of his mighty deeds, and then at the end, recounting of his mighty deeds, and then it kind of works its way to a point in the middle. It's almost like a triangle to put an arrow on one particular truth that drives the rest of the structure. This is unusual for us. We don't have the same type of literature, but I want to show you this. The book opens with the king of Persia's greatness, and it ends with Mordecai's greatness. It continues with Haman being elevated. It ends with Mordecai being elevated. It continues with Haman's decree to kill the Jews. It ends with Mordecai's decree to save the Jews. It continues with Esther and Mordecai's plan. It ends with Esther and Mordecai's plan. Then you have a banquet, and then you have another banquet, and in the middle, right in the middle, is this story, the king wakes up in the middle of the night. The entire book, almost down to the number of verses, is a triangle, and the triangle is pointing at this exact text. Look at the structure of the banquets of the story. It starts with a banquet for the nobles of the empire. It ends with a banquet for all the Jews. It continues with a banquet for all the men in Susa. It ends with feasting throughout the empire. It continues with Esther's coronation banquet, and then feasting in the celebration of Mordecai's promotion. And then Esther throws a banquet for the king and Haman. Esther throws another banquet for the king and Haman. And in the middle, again, the king wakes up. Now, why in the world does the entire story of Esther hinge on the king waking up in the middle of the night and remembering something he forgot? This seems like a non sequitur. Here's what this means. We would expect that the story of Esther would turn on her bold entrance to stand before the king, but it doesn't. In fact, after she does this, things actually get worse. No, the story turns on the king who happens to wake up in the middle of the night and who happens to say, I want to read some old record books, and happens to fall upon Mordecai's unrewarded deed and happens that this deed went unrewarded earlier so that at this exact moment, the king and his favor turn on a dime toward the Jews. Hoping God, oh my soul, he is strong in listening today to Pastor Ricky Alcantar's series, God of Chance. If you've been encouraged by what you heard today on Better News Radio, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 915-562-7100. And also, let us know how we can be praying for you. That phone number again is 915-562-7100. Or you can email us 
at radio at betternewsradio.com. You're also invited to visit our website, betternewsradio.com. There you can listen to today's message again or peruse our archive of previous teachings by Pastor Ricky. Subscribe to our podcast as well to receive the latest messages as soon as they're available. While you're at our website, be sure to check out Pastor Ron's introduction video telling you about the gospel message and why it's vital for the world today. Pastor Ricky has also created a book that's available for free that shares some incredible better news for life. In it, Pastor Ricky shares his own story and answers questions that many have about what living as a Christian truly means. Download the Better News book for free and share with your friends and family. You'll find it at betternewsradio.com. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. We pray that you'll continue to look for God's hand in your life every day and rely on Him to guide your steps with love and grace. Know that we're praying for you frequently. Thanks for tuning in today. And be sure to join us again for more from God's Word right here on Better News Radio.